Hi folks, this is Abel James and welcome to the Fat Burning Man Show where we talk about real food and real results. Plenty of exciting things going on. We still got the Fat Burning Chef launch. So many of you have been sending in your recipes. Really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun to see all the creations that you guys have made in the kitchen in the past few weeks as we get this book out to thousands of you. If you'd like to send us your recipes, feel free to post them to Facebook on my Facebook page. It's Facebook forward slash fatburningman, or uh, you can message me on Twitter. It's at fatburnman. Uh, and of course, our email list. Best way to get to us there is go to fatburningman.com and enter your best email and just reply. It's able at fatburningman.com. And if you're interested in checking out the Fat Burning Chef, our new e-cookbook, it's at fatburningchef.com. And we're still running a special discount for you guys. So uh, today's show is with Jonathan Baylor, and he's a guy who definitely knows his stuff. I was on his show a while back. It's always fun connecting with him. Uh, it's <laughs> There are a lot of truth bombs in this particular show. We talk about why you should eat more and exercise less, what being a type 1 diabetic is like, why calories in, calories out is a flawed framework, and how drinking a chocolate cocoa shake can give you huge muscles. All right, let's go hang out with Jonathan. All right, folks, today we're here with Jonathan Baylor, who's the man who says, eat more and exercise less. Jonathan's list of accomplishments includes registering more than 20 U.S. patents, authoring works that have been approved as curriculum for dietitians, and he hosts another top podcast, The Smarter Science of Slim. How's it going, Jonathan? That's going great. Eh? I'm talking to Abel James. How can I be doing any better? <laughs> oh, that is the perfect thing to say. And also, anyone with the credo, eat more, exercise less, is speaking straight to my heart. So why don't we start right there? Why don't you talk a little bit about that and why that's important? Well, well there's a key piece of punctuation in one other word that you left <laughs> off, and that was dash smarter at the end so it's eat more and exercise less smarter so that's the not more twinkies and and not just laying around all day right it's right. about eating more as you know right eating more high quality food and doing less but higher quality exercise focusing on quality rather than quantity yeah so so many people think that it's the opposite right that that we need to let's just talk a little bit about calories because even people who have heard this before need to hear it again i think you know that calories are not the most important thing. The most important thing is to be healthy. So why don't you just go on a little rant there? Because I, lo I love your thinking <laughs> behind all this and, and how the human body works. Obviously, you know a lot about physiology, but why don't you just rant about that a little bit, like calories and why it might be appropriate to actually exercise less and eat more? Absolutely. Well, Abel, the key thing to keep in mind here is that, and we've all, we all know this intuitively, we just need to be reminded of it, right? We all, if we go back to high school biology class, we all know that Every organism on the planet tries to maintain balance automatically. Like that is just a fundamental part of the being. It tries to maintain right. homeostasis, right? Like if you drink a lot more water, you urinate a lot more water, right? Like more in equals more out automatically. If you eat more, we tend to think you just automatically store more. And that, that is false. Your body tries to regulate your weight, just like it tries to regulate your blood sugar, just like it tries to re regulate your blood pressure. It's called the homeostatic regulatory system. And sadly, it's not widely accepted in the area of weight regulation because mm -hmm. it's more a subject neurobiology. But like, if you go on Wikipedia right now and you look up blood sugar, the Wikipedia article is like, yes, it's this homeostatically regulated process in the body. And we all get that, right? Yeah. Like when your blood sugar goes up, your body does things to bring it down. And if your blood sugar goes too low, your body does things to bring it back up. 
and that works for everything else in our body. So why wouldn't it work for the level of fat we carry around with us, right? Because if that drops too low, we die, and if it gets too high, we also become unhealthy. So just like every other system in our body, our body fat stores, our body attempts to homeostatically regulate them, but that system can be broken just like any other system in the body can be broken. But how do systems in the body get broken, Abel? They get broken by the wrong quality of food. Like your blood sugar, when you become a diabetic, they don't tell you eat less. They tell you don't eat these foods. Right. And when you get a heart attack, they well, and they tell you to do the wrong thing, but <laughs> they don't tell you to eat less. They tell you to avoid certain kinds of foods yeah. because those foods break the system itself. And once the system is broken, this is a morbid analogy, but the reason HIV and AIDS is such a diabolical, devastating condition is it attacks your immune system itself, mm-hmm. right? Like if you have a healthy immune system and you get a cold, You might be down for a week, but then you're back because your body brings you back to normal. But when we break our body's innate ability to maintain a healthy state of homeostasis in terms of our body composition, then it really doesn't matter how little we eat or how much we exercise. The system itself is broken. We need to fix the system. And the way we fix the system is simple. We stop putting things in it that break it, and we put more things in it that heal it. And that's why eating more but smarter is so important. You can't just stop smoking. You have to stop smoking and then do something else to heal your lungs. Yeah. Think the same thing here with food. Does that help? Yeah, that, that absolutely helps. So how do you feel about 100 calorie packs? <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's not. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, we're just going to break one toe instead of breaking your leg. Please just don't break any bones. I, that's the key thing. You know, it's, it's such a good point that... Uh, addressing the system i know that when i was in my early 20s i was i was metabolically broken there my thyroid was malfunctioning i had all sorts of other problems uh, basically uh, as a result of the diet that i was eating which is largely vegetarian i had a lot of it, deficiencies i'm sure but now since i am in this kind of happy state of homeostasis unfortunately i'm still a young man i'm amazed by how much i can actually get away with <laughs> you know, Absolutely. like when you do take yeah. that temporary divergence, so you, you feel like you completely overate or had too many sweets at, at some particular time, especially being around a lot of foodies and cooks, I'm amazed by how much I can eat at certain points. And it doesn't really seem to upset the system that I've built because I focus so much on the health first. And and same is true right now. I'm, I'm working through a shoulder injury that I got from Krav Maga. So I haven't been able to really move or at least do anything with the upper body in about two weeks. And mm-hmm. I was... uh you know, all freaked out that everything would go go wrong, um, but it really yep. hasn't over the course of time. So, why is that so powerful? Why why does it work that way? Once you reach homeostasis, why is it so hard to break out of it? Well, the key thing to keep in mind is we're all always at a state of homeostasis. Mm-hmm. It's just that some of our bodies, for example, when you have someone who's severely leptin resistance, we talk about insulin resistance all the time, but leptin resistance is also a very serious condition. And those are just two of many hormones that play a role, right? The reason a obese person can maintain their obesity despite the fact that they are exercising for an hour a day and are eating 1200 calories is because their body believes and will defend their elevated level of body fat just like your body will defend your much lower level of body fat. So we all are at homeostasis. The question is, what is the homeostasis point our body is targeting? And this is the thing that is so encouraging, and to your specific point, Abel, is that just like you said, 
right now your body is surprisingly resilient and surprisingly resistant to weight gain. But the vast majority of the population, 70% plus, is experiencing the exact opposite. Right. It right. seems like no matter what they do, their body is fighting weight, or excuse me, fat loss. Mm -hmm. So how encouraging is it that we can actually take the system that is making losing fat so hard and take that same system and make it make gaining fat that hard and that may sound too good to be true but we all know on some level it is true because we all know naturally thin people mm -hmm. we all know people that eat whatever they want don't exercise and stay slim how does that work what is different about their biology than other people's biology well that's been studied and we can identify those things and even for each of us individually we know that as we've grown older we haven't necessarily gotten lazier and we haven't necessarily gotten hungrier but it seems like it's harder and harder and harder to keep the pounds off. Mm -hmm. That's because that system itself is changing. It doesn't mean it's hopeless, but it means any effort that doesn't target the system itself is a bit like taking someone with a fever and putting them in an ice bath. Like it might do something temporarily, mm -hmm. but ultimately it will probably do more harm than good. And we want to focus on that system. So how do you do that as, as an individual, like you describe, who might be having that problem losing the fat because their body's defending it, how do you reset their set point? You have to do a couple things. One, you have to realize that there's two big components to your set point or what your body wants you to weigh. And that's first and foremost is your genetics. This is something which we just, we need to embrace because it's fact about 45 to 75% of your body composition is highly genetically predetermined. So it doesn't mean we can't do anything, but it means that we've got to work within that range of our control. So not just like not all of us can play in the NBA, not all of us can really have six pack abs when we just need to be that that's okay like that's that's okay right not not all of us are the same as each other so that's okay the second thing we want to keep in mind is for that 40 percent that we can affect that's really a function of our hormonal balance and the way we change our hormonal balance is through the quality of the food we eat and the quality of the exercise we get it is not through the quantity it is through the quality and in fact if we eat the wrong qualities of foods we essentially make our body work more like the body of someone who's struggling to lose weight and as we eat high quality foods and of course the question is what are high quality foods we'll get to that we make our body work more like it did when we were younger more like the body of a naturally thin person but the key thing able to keep in mind is that jogging for 10 minutes versus one hour versus two hours that's never going to change the system. Like dialing up the same level of input, but just putting more of it in the system, that doesn't change the system. Just like putting more unleaded fuel in your gas tank will never change the way your car runs. It might make it run longer, but it doesn't actually change it. You put kerosene in your car's gas tank, that's going to change something, right? <laughs> yeah, so how can we all run on kerosene then? <laughs> But, but yeah, that's, that's really the key. Well, you can see, and even like I use a clogged sink metaphor frequently yeah. where no matter how much water you put in a sink, it will just more water in means more water out, less water in, less water out. How do you clog a sink? How do you cause the set point level of water in a sink to rise and to stay elevated? You put the wrong quality of stuff in it, right? It's not too much water. Too much water may make the water level rise temporarily, but it'll go down over time. But when we start putting hair and paper towels and all kinds of other garbage, things the sink wasn't designed to handle yeah. gets clogged and then the system itself breaks down and we need to unclog our sink. So 
when you're talking about the system, what is, is, is there like one or a few of the most common problems that at least let's, let's talk about Americans to start. Cause I think we're, <laughs> it's the, we're the most obvious problem, right? Absolutely. Um, what are the top few biggest problems right now that we're doing to break our system that we can hopefully reverse at some point on, on a large scale? Yeah, the, the good news, Abel, is you can actually see the diets or lifestyles that have been most effective are most effective because they are the diets and, and lifestyles that change this system, right? Counting calories doesn't change the system, and that's why people continue to fail at it. But when people go paleo correctly, or they try the wild diet correctly, or they go low carb correctly, they dramatically change the quality of their diet. And because they do that, they do things like they avoid these refined seed oils, mm -hmm. which cause inflammation in the brain, which literally break your hypothalamus's ability to regulate your weight around a healthy set point. They avoid things like starches and sugars, which lead to leptin and insulin resistance, which again, just takes like, just like your sink drain becomes resistant to draining water. When we eat these, I call them insane, processed and refined starches and oils, they literally cause that same level of resistance for fat to drain off our body. So now our body's natural reaction when we eat these processed non-food garbage things is to say, if I am presented with too many calories, I'm going to store them rather than just burn them. And this, this varying ability of different bodies to store versus burn a surplus of calories has been demonstrated in myriad clinical studies. And the most key thing to keep in mind, Abel, is that every single, and I mean every single clinical study that's ever been conducted in which individuals were fed an abundance or a shortage of calories has disproven the calorie math theory, meaning that there has never been any study that's shown that, for example, if you ate enough calories to supposedly gain 10 pounds, no one would gain 10 pounds. Yeah. Everyone would gain less than 10 pounds, and some people would gain a pound, and some people would gain eight pounds. And they were all given the exact same diet, and they were all, these were like metabolic ward studies, so they wouldn't, they controlled everything. And what that's showing is the difference in the system. And Abel, what's even more interesting is they would do twin studies. And they would find that twins, people who shared the same genetics, they would lose the same amount of weight as each other. And they would gain the same amount of weight uh, as each other, but different sets of twins, like the Smith twins, both gain two pounds because they have the same genetics, they have the same system, whereas the Thomas twins would gain eight pounds, for example. So the key thing, the thing that's me so excited is that so many people that are going paleo or engaging in the wild diet or, or practicing these low-carb, higher-quality lifestyles, they have, in a sense, stumbled upon the way to fix this system. And that's, I remember reaching out to Mark Sisson right after my first book came out and just saying like, Mark, I have a bunch of science that proves you right. <laughs> <laughs> and same thing with you. It's just kind of like, hey, do you want to know why this works from like a neurobiological level? Here's why. Yeah, that's super cool. I'm actually going to be hanging out with Mark tomorrow for his Primal Con, which is happening in Austin. I also want to take a quick moment to acknowledge that we're both wearing gym shorts right now, despite your dress shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are. We are. <laughs> so anyone who's watching on video, just, just appreciate that. Even though we clean up our act a little bit, like to take it from the podcast to the video, we don't clean it up that much. So I just wanted to <laughs> drop that a little bit. Uh, so briefly, and without going too far down the rabbit holes, why does this dietary approach, like Mark Sisson's or the one that I prescribe, work? Well, when you look at what you're saying, what Mark's saying, and, and to some extent what a low-carb lifestyle is saying, is yeah. it's saying 
eat so much food that is more satisfying, that does less hormonal, causes less hormonal swings, that provides more nutrition per calorie, and that just requires your body to burn more energy, turning that food into metabolizable fuel. Mm -hmm. So when you take any food set and you increase the satisfaction level it provides you, you decrease the hormonal chaos it causes, you increase the nutrients it provides, and you increase the level of calories that it has you burn just day in and day out, you're going to improve your health and you're going to lose weight without even trying. Mean, that's, just, that's just biology. That's yeah. just one plus one equals two at that point. And the reason for that is, is you will get more satisfied in fewer calories, so you will accidentally, you will do what's called a spontaneous caloric reduction, and this has been shown in many, many clinical trials. You'll also do things like raise your base metabolic rate, and this is where some confusion happens, Abel, because it's not about consciously monitoring calories and calories out, but that doesn't mean that is irrelevant. It is relevant. The point is your body will automatically regulate it when your hormones and such are in the proper place. So when you eat what I call a sane diet, what you call the wild diet, what Mark calls a primal diet, is we essentially cause our body accidentally to generally, well, to metabolize fewer calories. We may eat the same number, but we metabolize fewer and we end up burning more automatically. Yeah, I dig it. So let's switch a little bit and talk bigger. I know you started as a personal trainer. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would assume that the way that you were schooled on that wasn't the way that you think now. What, what happened in between to make that shift and, and create such a broad vision? It was really a, a painful experience, Abel, because I, the reason I ask this question, and, and it's framed in terms of naturally thin people, is because I am a naturally thin person. Mm -hmm. And when I was a trainer at that time, I, was, I wanted to play football. I wanted to be like my brother, who was a very athletic individual. So I was intentionally eating 6,000 calories a day, trying to get bigger. But while I'm a trainer, I'm working with predominantly older female clients. When I say older, I mean between the ages of like 25 and 65, who wanted to get smaller. I wanted to get bigger. They wanted to get smaller. Right. And I was schooled in the traditional thought. So I had them eating 1200 calories a day and exercising way more than I was able. I didn't get bigger and they didn't get smaller. Yeah. And I was just anyone who's in a profession to try to help people who ultimately sees that not only are they not helping them, but they're, they're actually hurting them. To me, it became more of a moral obligation to find out something where I could actually serve my clients the way that I told them I, I wanted to. And I was also just confused in myself. I said, Abel, why, like, what is different? Like, what's going on here? I'm eating 6,000 calories a day and I'm not getting any bigger and they're eating 1,200 calories a day and not getting any smaller. So I was raised in a very academic household. Both my parents are college professors and I'm actually an engineer by trade. I work at Microsoft. So I have a natural tendency to geek out on stuff. So that started me on this 10 year odyssey to work through 1300 academic papers and just call up researchers all around the world and have these really geeky discussions about endocrinology and neurobiology and just like, yeah. what is the deal? Why are naturally thin people naturally thin? And the smarter science of slim is what came out the other end. What's the quick answer? Eat more and exercise less, but smarter. <laughs> no, but what's, what's the reason that, that thin people are thin or that fat people are fat? Just uh, genetically speaking. Their body, so when you eat more calories than you need, you don't have to store them, right? There's mm -hmm. all kinds of other things like uh, NEAT or non-activity uh, induced thermogenesis. And if you look at individuals who are naturally thin, when you feed them a surplus of calories, 
their body just burns it off. Like they mm -hmm. fidget, their base metabolic rate goes up. Their body is just get this out of here. Whereas when you study a, an obese individual, just genetically, their body says, oh, there's some extra calories here. I'm going to store them. <laughs> why that happens, you know, we don't really know. Why you have brown hair and other people have blonde hair, we, we don't know. Like that's some yeah. of the mysteries of life. But we do know that it happens. We do know that there are some people with brown hair and we do know that there are some people with blonde hair. And we treat them accordingly. Like we give them, you know, different, if they want to color their hair, we give them different stuff. And we just need different to acknowledge that our, our biologies are different and we need to accommodate each of our biologies. But the bottom line is by eating high quality, non-starchy vegetables, nutrient dense protein, whole food fats and low fructose fruits, I don't care who you are, that's going to make your biology behave as much like a naturally thin person as it can. So some people argue that being a naturally thin person allows you to eat more carbs. Would mm -hmm. you reject that? Individuals who are naturally thin likely have a higher tolerance. Like they are less likely to become insulin or leptin resistance mm -hmm. due to the ingestion of those carbohydrate, which could, yeah, the, I mean, the argument there is that essentially, yes. So someone who's a naturally thin person likely has a higher carbohydrate tolerance than someone who is not a naturally thin person. And it also, yeah. of course, matters what kind of carbohydrate, right? But I would tend to agree with that. And it's a, it's a tolerance, though. It's not a necessity. It's never a necessity. Even the USDA acknowledges that in their giant document that is used to create their delightfully terrible food guide <laughs> pyramid and plate, they acknowledge that the absolute requirement for human life is zero when it comes to carbohydrate. Yeah. So, Jonathan, where does that leave you in terms of what you do if you want to build muscle, for example? For me, building muscle is about two things. Well, it's really about one thing at the end of the day, and that's increasing muscle building hormones. Mm -hmm. Like, don't do this, but if you want to build muscle, the most effective way to do that is to inject yourself with more hormones. <laughs> I mean, don't do that, but but here's the reason I say that. <laughs> that's such a great way to say it. Don't do it, but here's the most effective thing you can do. <laughs> But, but the reason I say that, Abel, is if we take a step back and say, yeah, of course, if, if someone takes steroids and sits on the couch and eats Fritos, they will gain more muscle faster than someone who's doing everything else yeah. right. So we have to say to ourselves, how can we do that while not hurting ourselves? And that's when you start to look at foods that cause a more androgenic response in the body. And you look at exercise that triggers things like human growth hormone and norepinephrine and adrenaline. You can use food and exercise to essentially cause a similar, albeit smaller scale, hormonal reaction in the body as taking a steroid. But it's a, it's a natural thing. The body is only going to do it at a level that mm -hmm. it can maintain and it is healthy versus overwhelming it with an artificial and external source. Yeah. What foods would you eat? For example, because I know a lot of people who are listening are just those naturally thin people who want to put on mass. The number one thing I would do is one, I'd buy a high quality blender. I'd buy a bunch of coconut. I'd buy a bunch of cocoa and I would buy uh, a bunch of grass fed beef. I'd buy a bunch of wild caught salmon. And I probably if you're naturally thin, I would buy some sweet potatoes and that's probably the core of what I would buy. I'd probably maybe buy some avocados too. And I would make just massive smoothies with a bunch of that delicious cocoa, a bunch of that delicious coconut, put some water in there, put whatever else you want in there. Your meals should be very, very protein dense, 
but you will, and, and you're going to want to do some sweet potatoes potentially before and after your workout. But the key thing, Abel, is really going to be creating an abundance, a caloric surplus from really healthy and hormonally helpful sources while providing enough structural tissue, aka protein, while providing an insulin boost because you do want your cells to open up and take that protein in. And that's what those uh, sweet potatoes would do. And you could also uh, use low fructose fruits like berries and citrus if you wanted. So some people also say that the more insulin you have over time, the more damaged you are, the more you're going to be shortening your life. But at the same time, like you said, it's essential for muscle growth, which is also important in longevity. So where does that leave us? Well, it's important to keep in mind, Abel, that yeah, insulin is an anabolic hormone, meaning it synthesizes tissue production. So, for example, if we want to avoid sarcopenia, which is like osteoporosis, but for your muscles, mm-hmm. which the vast majority of the older population does, like we need some level of anabolic environment in our body. So, again, insulin isn't evil. It's too much insulin is evil. And the key thing to keep in mind, I, I think, is really that like insulin is not harmful just like glucagon is not harmful and just like leptin is not harmful. It's sustained excess insulin that is harmful. And for each of us, I think one of the good pieces of advice is if there's any question here, like buy a glucometer Mm -hmm. because the way your body reacts to a certain food from an insulin response is not the same as my body. So oftentimes people get in these arguments where it's like, no, this is better than that. And it's a bit like saying, no, this shirt is better than that shirt. Like it kind of depends on who you are and in which context you're wearing the shirt. So high level, I think just a global fear of insulin is, is not an appropriate fear to have, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Good. (laughs) I agree (laughs) with you. (laughs) I like my insulin sometimes. Not too much though. So you need it. What well, enables are just one yeah. one other silly point. For anyone who like really doesn't like insulin, ask a type one diabetic what it's like to live without insulin. This is really not a fun experience. Like yeah. there are people in the world that don't have any insulin. That really doesn't help their longevity. Yeah. Why don't you give us a brief snapshot of what that looks like? What just type one diabetes is? Without insulin. Yeah. Like <laughs> <laughs> like what makes it what makes it so bad? Just for people who don't really know, because I know there's a lot of uh insulin fear mongering that's been going about lately especially in like the paleosphere yeah and to to be clear too much of anything is bad right like you drink too much water you die one radio host does every year right they're like look how much water i can drink (laughs) (laughs) so so don't overdo anything but type 1 diabetics are very different from type 2 diabetics type 1 diabetics are born with the inability to produce insulin and from a very high level insulin is the key that unlocks your fat and muscle cells so that energy can get into them so and when i say energy i mean glucose your body is either running on ketones or glucose ketones don't need insulin to do their thing glucose does so one way to diagnose type 1 diabetes this is gross but is that your urine becomes sweet, literally sweet, like you have Kool-Aid urine basically. And the reason that's happening is because when you eat glucose, because you have no insulin, glucose gets to your cells, knocks on the door, it won't let them in, so the glucose has to leave your body. And it leaves your body through your urine. So you could actually take someone who's a type one diabetic and if you were to feed them 10,000 calories a day of glucose, well, one, they would they would die because that would have be too much blood sugar. Yeah, but number one, have, don't do that. <laughs> don't <laughs> do that. <laughs> number two, they would have just incredibly sweet tasting urine right before they died. 
because all of that glucose would just be excreted from the body because there's no insulin to get it into the cells. And so it turns out we can actually use glucose for certain things, not too much of it. But but let me ask you this. So carb wise, I mean, people are all across the board, but what do you try to do when you're eating? Is there a number that you have in mind for each day? Absolutely not. I have no numbers in mind when I eat food. I, I do not do math when I eat. Uh, what I try to do is focus. So the one number that I, I guess I celebrate able is every single day I go out of my way to eat double digit servings of non-starchy vegetables. Yeah. And non-starchy vegetables are carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, if I were to break my carbohydrate, carbohydrate <laughs> intake down, yeah. I would say it's between 75 and 125 grams of carbohydrate per day. Mm -hmm. So say I'm taking in like lots of fiber, maybe 90 grams of fiber per day just from you know those those non-starchy vegetables. Yeah. So that's the number one thing like I recommend to anyone is if you want to improve your health, double digit non-starchy vegetables. Non-starchy vegetables are vegetables you can eat raw. Yeah. So like things you'd put in salad. That's going to be hugely important for your health and those are carbohydrates. So anyone who eats less vegetables, non-starchy because they're fearing carbohydrate, I strongly believe and the research strongly suggests that you may be making the wrong trade-off yeah. there. I dig it. What about the paleo folks who are heavy on the meats and not as heavy on the veggies? Why is that not necessarily a good idea? I like to think of the way we eat as how do we provide the most of what our body needs and the least of what our body doesn't need or that harms our body. So to be very clear, if you're eating a bunch of grass-fed beef liver and a wild-caught salmon, like that's going to provide a dramatic amount of essential nutrients. Mm -hmm. But something like a conventional hamburger patty is not going to provide you with as much of what you need from a micronutrient perspective as, say, spinach or kale. Mm -hmm. We have to say, what are the foods, and this is just a math problem at this point, that provide the most essential nutrients, both micro and macro, per calorie? And that's really not debatable with the exception of maybe organ meats, that those are going to be non-starchy vegetables. Yeah. Oh, organ meats. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just about out of time. Um, but why don't we talk a little bit about what you're working on next, your book, and when it comes out and where folks can find you. So we only scratch on the surface of the myths around calories today, Abel, and the book is goes much deeper into that and also has a bunch of practical information, which is great. And it's fortuitously called the calorie myth. <laughs> so it dispels the three major calorie myths, and that's coming out with HarperCollins in January of 2014. So keep an eye out for that. And in the meantime, the smarterscienceofslim.com has got bunches and bunches and bunches of free information, lots of fun videos. We also have a bunch of nonprofit work going on, which you can find from there. Also a podcast, which you can find from there. Killer. Well, thank you so much for coming on. You're pro packed with information. I wish I could talk to you all day. My listeners I'm sure <laughs> would agree with that. But since you can't, be sure to check out his podcast as well. And uh, Jonathan, you're welcome anytime. This is awesome. Thank you so much, brother. I appreciate it. Next time I want to wear my dress shirt and my gym shorts, <laughs> I will call you up. Deal. You have my number. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good, brother. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening to the Fat Burning Man Show. If you'd like free fat burning tips, muscle building goodies, as well as a free ebook and video course, head on over to fatburningman.com and enter your best email, and I'll shoot those right over to you. If you'd like to follow me on Facebook, I'm at facebook.com forward slash fatburningman, and on Twitter, 
My handle is FatBurnMan. Got some killer shows on the way, but in the meantime, be well, and I'll be talking to you guys soon. Cheers. Cheers.